following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Welcome this morning. We're glad that you're here with us at Fellowship Bible Church. If you're visiting, God bless you. Thank you for coming. And um, if you're regular here, the Lord bless you too. <laughs> and, uh, glad that you are coming on in. If you have a Bible with you, uh, please turn it, if you would, to Isaiah. And we're in Isaiah 44, Isaiah chapter 44. We're just continuing in our series of reading through the scripture, chapter by chapter. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write his, with his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to, me, to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no rock. I know not one. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a god or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, they, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest, he plants a pine, and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. You sense the mocking tone of this? How foolish. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I've burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I've also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? What he means there with abomination is idol or a false god. One of our brothers was telling me this morning, it's hard to believe the naivete. That's what this is. People are blind to the real things of life, to reality. Uh, Isaiah writes on, Shall I fall down before a block of wood? 
You see this block of wood cut from the tree, planted in the forest, nourished by rains from heaven, made by God. And they worship the thing created rather than the creator. That's our world today as well. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions. Amen. And like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers? Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid." A century before Cyrus did that, these words, more than a century, I think, actually, these words are written. Amen. If you would turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 now, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And uh, I want to just alert you to the fact that although... We don't often talk about the subject that is talked about here. It is brought up in this passage. And um, so as as I was going to say later in the message, but I'll say now, uh, why are we talking about this subject? It's going to start out in verse 1 with this. Now concerning the collection for the saints, he's going to talk about offerings, uh, financial uh, support in one of the ministries of the church. And you say, well, why are you talking about that? Or do you always talk about that? Well, we don't really always talk about this. But uh, we're here in 1 Corinthians 16 for one main reason, and that's because 16 is equal to 15 plus 1, okay? So we are in chapter 16 because we just finished chapter 15. And so this is our pattern when we select a book of the Bible to give exposition through it. We just go straight through it, and that guarantees that we will touch all the topics that God wants us to address, because we want to preach the whole counsel of God. So we have to touch this matter today. That's been ordained for us because of the location in the text of Scripture. And the Apostle Paul dealt with this with uh, the Corinthian church on a couple of occasions, the Philippians, the Romans, and a few places in the New Testament. We'll visit those just to see that and how that's the case. So he writes this in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. We move then from the Christian teaching on the doctrine of resurrection, which took up all of chapter 15, 58 verses, now to the Christian teaching about giving, giving. The chapters before this are a mixture of two different kinds of chapters. Some of them are issues that the Apostle Paul heard about in the life of the Corinthian church. Somebody had brought back news to him that, you know, there are people teaching something wrong about the resurrection, they have some divisions in the church, they have some immorality in the church, they have lawsuits that are popping up between believers, Paul deal with this. And so he does in this specific letter to the problems of the Corinthian church. 
And then there are other matters in the letter, for example, chapter uh, 7, chapter 8, chapter 12, and this issue where Paul uh, indicates that he's answering questions that they sent to him. So they asked him about uh, marriage, they asked him about spiritual gifts, Um, they asked him in here about giving, Um, and so he's responding to their questions. And these, in this sense, it's like a Q&A, question and answer session. And uh, all of these are issues that pastors uh, run into all the time. People ask them about marriage, about my spiritual gifts, about, you know, um, this issue here of, of giving. Should I give? How much should I give? Am I commanded to give? And all of these sorts of things that are inquired. And so Paul gives us some good you know, foundational material to use for that. And we know that because if you look at the first two words, at least in my translation, verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 1, says, now concerning. And that you see back in chapter 7 and verse 1. Watch this. He says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. Chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning. And they ask him a question about things offered to idols. You know, in our context, Paul uh, people offer meat to idols all the time, and then they sell it at the grocery store. What do we do with that? I mean, if it's been offered to an idol, is it contaminated? Can we not eat it? Um, and then he writes to them about, in chapter 12, spiritual gifts. Notice it says, now concerning spiritual gifts. Brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. And so we're at the last of these questions now. They asked him something about the giving uh, for what they were what a project that they were working on. So the church required instruction here on this matter of collecting a financial gift for believers far away in Jerusalem. Look at the end of verse 3. Paul says, I will send them to bear your gift to Jerusalem. A couple of times in the New Testament, in particular uh, Acts chapter 11, you'll find, I think, there a reference to helping people in Jerusalem who were under the stress of famine. There was a famine throughout the land, and there was great poverty, impoverishment, and it was difficult for them to find or to purchase food. Uh, Food became a much higher percentage of their uh, weekly budget, and they needed help to get through the difficult time. This is another case like that, where there is a need amongst the people in Jerusalem. Perhaps the city was too large uh, to support the population, uh, or the, the city itself did not have the resources surrounding it, maybe uh, too many people, so to speak, and they needed extra help to, to buy in food, to import it into the city there and for the believers in the church or churches. So Paul gave uh, direction to the churches in Galatia about this matter, about this problem, and uh, he also did with others as well. The collection was a big project. So imagine our church being asked by uh, some other churches to join together and to give an offering of substantial size. We're not talking about throwing five bucks into the problem. We're talking about feeding a population of Christian people, maybe hundreds, who need help. They need an extra boost. And we we could be part of such a thing if we were like the Corinthian church in this particular situation. And so this is a huge project, really, supported by several churches that Paul was working with. Now, let's consider a couple of portions of Scripture that deal with this. Turn back to Romans 15, Romans 15, 25. Dealing with this project giving here, Romans 15, 25. But now, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. So it's almost incidental Paul's just telling what his plans are, but I'm going to go and help the saints in Jerusalem, and it's with this gift that he's talking about. And this 
uh, included churches from Macedonia and Achaia. Could you give me a name of a church in one of those areas? Macedonia and Achaia. Well, remember when Paul was called, he got the Macedonian call, where did he go? He went to Philippi. Philippi. Then he went to where? Berea and to Thessalonica. And Achaia includes Corinth. So there are people in Macedonia, Philippi and Berea and so on, Thessalonica, and also Achaia, Corinth, who are gathering this offering, and he's telling the Romans this now, just as a it's kind of a you know a big deal what they're doing. The collection, oh by the way, turn to 2 Corinthians, since we're right there next door in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8. <clears throat> Now Paul is again writing to the Corinthian church in Achaia, Greece, and he says in 2 Corinthians 8, 1, Moreover, brothers, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, this is their financial ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. This is a partnership that they felt like they wanted to be involved in. And they gave a very generous gift, even out of their poverty. And so Paul is using them as a a way to challenge the Corinthian church to excel in the grace of giving. And he deals with this in 2 Corinthians 8 all the way through the end of chapter 9, at at which point he talks about uh, giving thanks to God for his indescribable gift. What is that gift that, that Jesus, who was rich, became poor for our sakes, that we might become rich? And so if that is the gift of God, think of how we should be giving in the material realm to others who have need. So it's the same financial project that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, as well as this one in 1 Corinthians 16, as well as in the Romans 15 portion. Now, the collection was not specifically for church operations, but for the help of believers who were impoverished by this famine. Through no irresponsibility of their own, they faced a situation where it was difficult and expensive to to buy or to grow food, and so they needed help. And the expectation of Christians is that we will help our brothers who are in need, isn't it? If we see our brother in need, we're not supposed to just say, well, good luck. That's the vernacular of, you know, be warmed and filled in the King James, be on your way, or... um, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, you know, do good to, to all men, especially of the household of faith. So John and James and Paul all talk about these matters and expect us to help when there is a need for help, a legitimate need for assistance. Now, this is a good place in the message to point out different categories of support as I think of them. We're talking about here benevolent help, um, charitable help for people that meets a practical need. But there are also other categories of church financial support. Uh, We have today, they didn't have this back in the early church, but today we have the challenge of financing a building. So we have to buy it, we have to maintain it, we have to keep the heat on, keep the lights on, and fix it, and all of those sorts of things, clean it. We have that. So that does take money to do that. We could not meet like this in your living room because A, your living room isn't big enough, and B, your neighbors would complain and the city ordinance inspector would come along and uh, cite you and not allow you to have a meeting in your home, unfortunately. That's kind of a sad state of affairs these days, but it is what people want and uh, try to control others that way. But we have to have a building. But Reality that the support, the financial piece of the church is mainly concerned with people, not with buildings. Think about it. You support the pastor, pastors, 
You support missionaries with finances. You uh, support local ministries. Um, you support, well, faraway ministries. So th- those are all different categories of support. And we see those in other portions of the Bible. You think of Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, one of the things he was doing with the letter to the Philippians, although you might miss it if you're not paying close attention, is he's writing a thank you note to the Philippians for supporting his work. He's saying, look, I, I, since you... Since you brought your, your gifts, Epaphroditus brought that which was lacking in your service to me, I, I have all in a bound. I've learned to be abased, and I've also learned to abound. Whether I'm that way or this way, I've learned also to be content, he says. But he is thankful for that, that work. And you see in the book of Acts, oh, chapter 17, he receives some financial support from churches he had planted earlier. And he's able to dedicate himself to the work of the ministry. They were supporting him so that he could do Christian work. So it was a personal kind of support, supporting a a person, a a different people. But whether it's for pastors or missionaries or local outreach or buildings or benevolence, church financial support is all part of the work of the church. In our church situation, we've supported several families uh, who have had problems during COVID lockdown, job losses, and illness. And it's been a blessing for me as a pastor to be at the front end of that. Um, People giving the church money and saying, please give this to so-and-so, or so-and-so expressing a need, and I'm able to be the agent of the church family to support that need, to give from the church's treasury to help that. And that's a blessing. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive, is it not? And uh, we, have that, we have that blessing to be able to do that. However, sometimes, this is interesting, sometimes on occasion, even in the last year, help from the church has been turned down because there's a seeming or apparent need, but God has supplied through some other way. And sometimes that way is simply because of the vast wealth and prosperity of our nation both individually or in terms of the populace, but also in terms of the government and the support that people receive from it. So God is providing in different ways. You go back to the text, he says, Paul says, as I have given orders. Paul could do this because he was an apostle. Okay? <clears throat> he was a specially appointed representative of Jesus Christ, and there were only a handful of such people ever in the history of the world, and they were all witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. So listen, there, there are no apostles today. There are no churches with apostles uh, in them. It's just not uh, something that is. It's not a thing anymore. But nobody has that authority today, that direct authority invested by Jesus Christ. What we have is delegated authority invested through the Word of God. So we have, as we proclaim, the truth and directives of the New Testament. God expects us to obey those. But there's not a heavy enforcement tool that we have to make that happen. What do I mean by that? Sometimes when you have a combination of the church and the state, Christian people have gotten confused, and they've said, oh, we've got the power to enforce certain things, so we are going to do that. We will physically banish people who don't believe the way we do, or we will uh, kill people who are heretics. Awful, awful stuff. Think about that. You think the Lord Jesus would... I mean, what did he tell James and John, the sons of thunder? You don't know what manner of spirit you're of trying to call down fire from heaven on these people or tell somebody who casts out demons in the name of Christ to stop because he doesn't follow with our exact group? Yeah, it's not. It's, it's, we don't have that kind of physical enforcement power. We have a couple of things that God has called us to do. If somebody's walking in disobedience and unrepentant sin, we, we are called to remove them from the fellowship of the church. We can also come alongside someone and give them mutual encouragement and, and, edu- and you know, education, if you will, admonishment if they're walking in disobedience. 
whether it's in this matter of giving or, or some other matter. But that's it. Why? Because of two things, I think, we could say. One is the Christian faith is a voluntary affair. That is to say, you choose to follow Christ. If any man wills to do his will, he will know of the doctrine, whether it's mine. So there's a, there's a, ch- a choosing loyalty that you've got to decide, am I going to follow Christ or not? And if you decide not to, well, in some way, that's your business. Now, it may grieve my soul as a shepherd to see the sheep willfully running off into the wilderness, doing whatever they please to do, but it's a voluntary faith. It's a life chosen willingly by, by the participants in it. And if they should choose to disobey God, that's really between God and them. And that's where ultimately the... Um, that's where the buck really does stop because you're going to have to give an account. If you don't obey the apostles' orders, if you don't obey the Bible's instruction, then you know, maybe you'll be removed from the church fellowship. Maybe you, you've dem- you're demonstrating unrepentance. Maybe it looks like you're walking like an unbeliever. But that's all that can be done from the church side. But you will give an account to God for how you've conducted yourself. So if you can give, as in this context, and you refuse, ultimately that's between you and the Lord. If you can read your Bible, but you refuse, then you have to deal with that between you and God. If you can spend time in prayer, but you refuse, you don't. If you can attend church, but you don't, I can't, you know, lasso you in and bring you because it's voluntary. But just know, you don't answer to me or anybody else. You answer to God. Your life, you have one to live. You choose how to live it, but you'll be accountable for it. Now, Paul gave these orders to the churches in Galatia, and they were the same exact thing that he was telling the church in Corinth. You know, Paul did not give instructions to one church that were unique or unapplicable to every other church. Everything that Paul wrote here has got some application to us. And it is kind of interesting if you think about it. He didn't write a systematic theology treatise here. What did Paul do? He wrote, well, not 21, he wrote 13 or 14 letters. The New Testament comprises of 21 letters, plus the four Gospels, plus Acts, a history, and seven more letters in the book of Revelation. And then the rest of the book of Revelation. That's the whole New Testament. So letters were used to tell the churches, you know, to instruct the churches, to help the churches. And they have that wide application to all churches today. So relevant to us. This applies as well. Now, they were told concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given orders to the churches of Galatia, just like them, so you must do also. Verse 2, on the first day of the week... Let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. Verse 2 opens up with the time marker for the obedience that was expected to the command of the apostle. Okay, on the first day of the week. You ever have something in your mind that you want to do, but you don't have a time in your mind to do it? What happens to that thing that you want to do? You forget, it goes to the next day, you procrastinate, you don't get it done. You say next Tuesday? Yeah. Tomorrow is always the best day to start something, isn't it? And tomorrow comes, well, tomorrow is the next day. If you don't have a deadline, ask yourself, okay, I want to do what? When, right? By when? If there's no, you know... If there's no first day of the week that you come to church and the finances are gathered, then it can just be you know, forgotten. Good intentions don't get something done. You know, I'll get to it someday. I'll get around to it sometime. You know, our, uh, one of our family members is kind of a joker, and he shows us uh, around 
piece of wood with the words to it on it. It's a round to it. You've seen that before probably, right? I'll get around to it. Paul says to implement the collection for the saints on the first day of the week. Now, we have a similar thing in our church. Since COVID started, we stopped passing the plate, even though now we probably should pass it just because, uh, you know, how, how likely is it that you're going to pick up COVID from a surface? You read that data? Yeah, we were so terrified by, oh, it's, you know, we got to wipe our groceries down and everything like that. Anyways, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll start doing that again sometime, but... Since the beginning of it, we just left a plate in the back, and you put your offering in the plate in the back, and then we pick that up and collect it. But people literally forget to drop their offering in the plate. I've done it before. I got it. I put it in here, and I go home, and I'm saying, hey, what's that still in there for? <laughs> you know? You know that, that. There's too many things on my mind on Sunday morning. It's easy to forget those sorts of things, and I understand that. But at some point, giving has to be important enough that you actually do it sometime, not just I'll get around to it sometimes. Uh, You know, it's funny, bills never seem to just come, oh, once in a while or when they feel like it. You know, the companies are always very diligent to send those bills on time and expect you to pay them by the due date that's on there. And so so offerings should be kind of like that as well, disciplined. Uh, in that way. So the church giving was happening on the first day of the week. By the way, what is the first day of the week? It's sad to have to even explain this, but people are confused today. You know, they, they set their computer in a mode where it shows the calendar starting on Monday. Monday is not the first day of the week. It never has been and it never will be. It's the first day of the work week, perhaps, because Christianity in the West has bent the culture, has shaped the culture such that we have a weekend. We don't work seven days a week. That's foolishness. Uh, And we have Sunday off. So it's a good day to meet. Church meetings are already scheduled on the first day of the week, Sunday. And so it's convenient for the people to take up a collection on that day. Now, we have other evidence in the New Testament for meeting on Sunday. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, it says that Paul came uh, to the city and they met late on Sunday evening, way late into the evening. That's the time when that young man fell out of the third floor and uh, had to be revived by the Apostle Paul because he fell asleep and fell down. That's Acts 20 and verse number 7. Revelation 1 verse 10 says, "On On the Lord's day... John was in the spirit and received a vision of the book of Revelation. So we have some evidence there of the first day of the week meeting, and we have good reasons for it. But some people try to make the big case that we have to meet on Saturday in order to obey the law of Moses. Well, that's a false doctrine, and we must ignore it because we're not under the law of Moses and because of the principle of conscience. In Romans 14, what does Paul say? Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind as to the day on which he's to worship or other matters regarding dietary things and and such like that. You can meet any day of the week you want to to worship God. You know that. You also know there's no command to meet on Sunday to worship God? I mean, if you find it, let me know. We live under grace. We're not under the law. Okay, And that was going to apply to our giving here. We'll see how in just a moment. But by common agreement, Christians recognize that because we're required to meet regularly, it makes good common sense to commemorate the Lord's resurrection that happened on the first day of the week. Remember Matthew chapter 28, early the first day of the week, the women went to the tomb to anoint the body. What would they find? Whoops, nobody there to anoint. He's not here, for he's risen the first day of the week. Secondly, as I mentioned, Christianity in the West has impacted the culture in such a way that Sunday is a common weekend day off, which is perfect for meeting. You know, we might lament that there are no blue laws, if you know what those are, 
In other words, you know, we might lament that things are all open on Sunday and everybody's in the commercial business and all that sort of thing. But you know what? That's the world. You do what you know you're supposed to do and be here. Be at the church. Give yourself to God's worship and all of that. Of course, they're going to do what the world does. That's what the world is. But we do have a weekend day off generally, unless we're in some field like medicine or something. We have to care for people who are very ill. And thirdly, in addition, we want to give God the first fruits of our week, right? We don't want to give God the leftovers. Well, God, if I have a few extra minutes at the end of the week, I'll I'll spend some time in the Bible. No, when when we set ourselves a time, first day of the week to worship, or maybe the first opening moments of the day to spend time in prayer or to read the Bible... We do our souls good. We don't give God the leftovers. We give him the first fruits of the day and trust him to give us the rest of the day ahead. Okay? We've given him, we'll give him the first few hours today and trust him to give us the rest of the hours before we join together again this evening. Give God your best, not the rest, dear friend, and not your worst. Now, Paul says in verse 2, going back to our text, Uh, gathering the gift, storing it up as he may prosper, that there be no collection when I come. So everyone is to participate in the gift. It's a regular part of worship to give such funds. Years ago, I didn't really think of that, but actually giving is an act of worship. You know that? And not giving or holding back is a measure of a lack of worship to God. Each one is to participate. Notice how he says it. As he may prosper. Obviously, this means that some will give more, some will give less. This is not a poll tax, you know, X amount per head. It's not membership dues. Now, there are literally churches that address, maybe you've come from a church where this is the way they do it. You, you know, you... uh, are in a certain kind of job, they expect a certain amount of money from you every month because they kind of estimate what your uh, annual income is and do the division and say this is what your dues are. And then maybe they post the biggest givers on the wall in the church to elevate them. Um, No, my friends, (laughs) it's a sick way to do it. When you give, you don't let your left hand know what your right hand is giving. And so that's why we don't talk about this issue all the time. So just so you know, uh, in this church, the standard of giving is voluntary, proportional, generous, sacrificial giving. You decide. That's between you and the Lord. It's a grace-giving standard. People always ask, do you preach a tithe? Tithing. No, not at all because there's no tithing taught in the New Testament. That's the law of Moses, not the law of Christ for the church today. The giving is to be proportional. Those who have more, give more. Those who have less, give less. It's generous. You know, you've, maybe you've seen this before. I have just been around the church for many years and being involved in ministry, or you've seen it portrayed in a movie or something. You know, somebody that kind of gives the perfunctory few bucks in the offering plate, and that's like supposed to, you know, clean them of the responsibility and, 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 and uh, you know, absolve them of some sin or something like that. Look, it doesn't work like that. You cannot give your way out of hell, all right, or purgatory or anything else, okay? That's not how that works. And I'm just thinking, too, you know, I've known churches over the years who support missionaries at a very low a level amount per month. And, uh, in fact, it's become so, it's so common that one time we gave an honorarium to somebody of $500 for ministry on a Sunday. And they called me and asked, did you accidentally put an extra zero on the end of the offering? And I said, no, we did not maybe should have put an extra zero on the end of what we put on there. Who can live on 50 bucks a week? I can't. I know you can't. You can't give a minister 50 bucks and say thanks. That's pathetic. 
You know, I'm not saying that because I need more or want more or anything. I'm just saying you have guests visiting preachers, missionaries, and all that. You need to give them a generous offering. You don't just throw a few bucks. The giving has to be sacrificial. What did David say when Aruna, the Jebusite, said, you know, David had to make an offering, and, 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 and Aruna said, hey, you know, take it, give it. I mean, he was a generous man, probably a fairly wealthy man. And David said, I will not offer what doesn't cost me anything. That's not an offering. That's also pathetic. And so he wanted to give God a, a sacrificially. If the giving has no effect on our budgets, then we're not giving sacrificially. Giving is to be regular. It's to be part of worshiping God. We cannot not give and claim that we are worshipers of the Lord. And ultimately, the standard is grace giving. Paul wants the churches to excel in this grace also. So giving is a grace. As God gave to us who do not deserve, we also can give graciously. Now, practically speaking, I have to move on quickly because of time, Paul wants them to kind of collect things together as the weeks go by so that there's not a big scene at the end when everybody brings all their offerings and they collect them and, and, and get the count and, and all of that sort of thing. So, you know, store up week by week until I come, then everything will be done and it will keep the operation kind of low key. Notice he doesn't say you have to give 10%. We're morally responsible as Christians to give something as God has prospered us, but 10% is not anywhere taught in the Bible. Um, You'll never hear me say, uh, like I heard one time a pastor said publicly in a church, the, the public record of, of a sale of a property was available, as it always is, and you can see how much the property is sold for. And so say it was sold for $100,000, and the pastor knew that a member in the church had sold a piece of property. And he got up and he said, somebody owes this church $10,000, a tithe of that money. That is crass. That is wrong. That is bad to even think that way. So there's no tithe. There's no obligation that way. And in fact, if you obligate people, you probably get less giving than if you don't. True Christian people are generous people, and they will give and support the work. Now, uh, is giving a problem in our church? Why am I addressing it? Well, I said that already. I'm addressing it because this comes after chapter 15, and we're here. So that's why we're looking at this. But on the positive side, I can answer the question, is it a problem in the church? No, it's not, because now for 40 years, our church is uh, having its 40th birthday this summer. Um, isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's already there. Yeah, uh, I would like to. Yeah, you think? Nice little picnic or something like that to commemorate the event? Yeah, maybe we'll get a guest speaker in here, huh? <laughs> Speaking of that. Um, no, the Lord has provided his means for the church to do his work for 40 years. And you know, the amazing thing is God has done that for thousands and thousands of churches throughout the world who are proclaiming the gospel. Of course, he could do it for 10,000 times 10,000 churches because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All he has to do is sell a few of them, and then he can put that money in the offering plate, right? Yeah. Oh, God has made us in all things, and if he wants us to do the work, we'll do the work. And and uh, we try to be very careful about the stewardship, and we don't want to be accused of waste. I don't think we can be credibly charged with, with waste. Uh, we do need to optimize, as always, a few areas of the finances. That's always something on my mind, trying to always be improving. Siempre mejorando in Spanish, always improving. On the negative side, though, I don't know for sure if giving is a problem in the church. Let me explain why. Because I do not look at everyone's giving. Now, again, I'll illustrate. I know of pastors who receive a Monday morning, a report on the giving in the church the previous day. Names and amounts, right down the list. I have never received such a report. Um, now, it used to be, in fact, I could say, I see almost nothing 
on the offering side of the finances. Of course, I feel I'm responsible for once the monies go into the bank, the investments, the interest, the expenditures, the budget, all that. Yeah, I'm intimately involved in all of that side of it. But I would almost never see anything on the income side. COVID has sort of totally ruined that because people send a mail and they give it to me and say, here, put this in the, in the, in the offering because I forgot or whatever. And so I have a little bit more contact that way, but it's not the majority of the giving in the church. The downside of not knowing, well, there's a big upside to that. I, I don't preach to you or minister to you or counsel you depending on your financial support of the church because I don't know. But, for the most part, as I've said, but there's a downside in that it's I might not be able to help a family who's struggling in this area because I don't know that they're struggling in this area. And people don't, you know, just come up to you all the time and say, well, pastor, you know, we're really struggling financially and could you help us with our budget? And, you know, we just don't know how to do this. And um, that doesn't happen. And so there have been cases in the church's history where you have families who have not given for months and even years to the ministry of the church. And I know that they're not dirt poor. Okay? In fact, none of you are dirt poor because you're not living on dirt floors. Okay? Yeah, you're living in homes, I know that. Apartments, whatever. So, um, you know, it could be that the financial um, uh, you know, gauge if you could have a financial gauge on somebody's life, might tell you, are they lazy? It might tell you if they're being wasteful, if they have wrong priorities. It can even tell you if they're resentful about something in the church. You know why? They say, well, I'm not giving to that church. I don't like how they did X, you know, or I don't like how the pastor chose to do this or that or something else, so I'm not giving. And so it could indicate a problem of lack of forgiveness. You see how finances actually can kind of get woven into all kinds of different issues. Uh, perhaps potential givers are poor stewards. Uh, people make thousands of dollars a month but give very little to the Lord's work. I've known people who have made a very generous living, but they just can't seem to get it together with their financial house because of lack of self-control. So I offer financial counsel if anybody desires that. Uh, I'm not going to say that it's going to be, you know, pat on the back and... Uh, you know, feel nice about yourself all the time, I'll, I'll say what needs to be said. So if that's a need you have, then you can let me know that. But that's the issue of, of giving. Now, Paul, in verses 3 to 4, addresses what about transporting the gift. This is kind of an interesting practical matter. He says in verse 3, When I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. There's some question here as to whether the letters are from the church or from Paul uh, to them but it doesn't really matter. What they're concerned with is, you know, we have a large gift of money, and we don't have a Brinks truck to take it. We can't wire it. We can't PayPal it, Venmo it, you know, uh, whatever. So we've got to carry it. And that's a problem because somebody could, you know, be like Judas and take off the top, or there could be thieves along the way, so we need trustworthy men. We need men who are capable to take such a journey. We need men who can go to Jerusalem and give the greetings of the church, maybe have some ability to say a word or two. Um, so they, they have to approve people to go with them to avoid theft, laundering, embezzlement, all of that. And they should be approved men for the job. Trustworthy men and commended to the church in Jerusalem. And then the Apostle Paul ends the section by saying in verse 4, if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So I don't know exactly what the parameters there were. How would they decide well, if it's fitting? I don't know, whatever. They knew, they decide if Paul should go. Maybe the guys that are going say, well, we don't know anybody in Jerusalem. We don't know the way to Jerusalem. So Paul, can you go with us? That'd make us feel a lot better. Yeah, sure, Paul says, I'll go with you. We'll, we'll get this done, take a trip and, and do that, and then come back. So maybe. From time to time, in the life of the church, specific instruction on the matter of giving needs to be reviewed. We've done that, and I pray that it's been a reminder 
that we are called to support God's work. It's, a, it's actually a great illustration of the gospel, isn't it? Does anybody deserve support? No, not really. Do we deserve God's grace? Absolutely not. But God gave it to us. He gave it to us. And so, because we are being made like Jesus, who gave, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. So since we're being made like him, we have a heart of giving. And we then help others, even if they aren't perfectly deserving people. None of us are, in fact. And so <clears throat> Christians are called to regularly support the work of the church, missions, benevolence, support for pastors, local missionary ministries, and so on. And if you don't do that, how's it going to happen? You know, in some European countries and other countries in the world, the government supported the churches. Oh, we don't want that. Last thing we want is that. But, you know, money's not growing on that nice walnut tree out in the back there, and there's no welfare for churches. So if the people of God don't give, the church will cease to exist. The Apostle Paul reminded the Gentile Christians in Romans 15 that it was an obligation for them to support the Jewish Christians. In this particular case, because the Jewish Christians had sent the gospel out far and wide and the, and the Roman Christians were a result of their ministry, they received from the Jews spiritual things and so they were taught to then return a little bit of material things. Now, we do not and cannot know about every group of Christians out there. We can know more today than before because, than years ago because of the Internet and all that sort of thing, and that can really burden your heart. Think about our brothers and sisters in Myanmar right now. How could we help them? Can we help? There are others that are closer connected to that and, and perhaps can provide some assistance. But there may be Christians you do know and you can help. Do that by the grace of God and for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this teaching. It's basic, maybe some consider boring, but it certainly does apply to each one of us as we consider how we should support your work. And I pray that we will faithfully, generously, graciously, sacrificially, proportionally, and all the rest that we've learned. Thank you, Lord, for this illustration of benevolence that the church was involved in to support some people who are in great need. And uh, Lord, teach us to do similarly. In Jesus' name, amen.